Hello and welcome to an all new edition of Jaffa Cakes for Proust. Joining myself, Gary, is Mr. Tiltereiser. Now, I know that you like to keep all the universes together and all that kind of stuff. They're like separate. In, but we should just acknowledge the hurt and distress we've caused with the last edition of the sitcom club. Oh, they had it coming. Oh, don't be horrible. Who are you? Presidential candidate? Politics? We didn't intend for that to be as much of a downer as it actually ended up being. That was not... Going in, we were just going to talk about the BBC4 sitcom, so that all just happened naturally. Well, yeah, we but... didn't work ourselves up. We, we're not playing a game of last angry men, only voices of sanity. The BBC sitcom season just struck us that way, and there wasn't really much that we could do about it. Notice how between the first show about the season and the second show about the season, the Christmas special went from there'll be a Christmas special to there might be a Christmas special. <laughs> we still haven't decided about that yet, but anyway, before we get on to Jaffa business, thank you very much, in all seriousness, thank you very, very much to everybody who got in touch with us regarding the last sitcom club. It was actually very touching how many people got back to us and said, well, you're going to be missed. Thank you for the shows and, and what have you. And yeah, we really do appreciate that. And we will be back at some point. We will not let that be the grand finale to the sitcom club. Once we've got our sort of enthusiasm for all things sitcom back and when network release Grundy and if they ever find the third unmade series of astronauts, then who knows where it will take us. But anyway, okay, here we are. We're over in the Jaffa world. And what are we doing today in the Jaffa world? Because you've been away so long... For various technical and organic failures, I thought, let's come back with a big splash. Let's do a Doctor Who. Because we already had one outstanding on our requests. Somebody had asked us to do a Doctor Who. So it's like, right, we'll get this Doctor Who done. And we'll get the clicks and people will notice us and learn what we're about. So we watched The Web Planet. You might notice on the tags on this MP3, this is not about The Web Planet. We watched The Web Planet... And we couldn't think of enough to say about it. So we counted the web planet as research. I thought, well, the 10th planet. We could talk about that. Now, of course, all the while we're talking about this, then there's this announcement. There's going to be an animated version of The Power of the Daleks. The story after the 10th planet. So we're hoping that before the end of the year, we're going to do the 10th planet today we will at some point talk about the power of the Daleks. And then we are done with Who for a long time, at least as far as Jaffa Kicks of Proust is concerned. Because I, at one point there was going to be an absolute Who ban. And then I thought, it's kind of perverse to talk about British television and British culture at the time we talk about it and not talk about Doctor Who. But at the same time, it can sometimes be a drag when somebody treats archive British television as a subheading of Doctor Who rather than the other way around. But Doctor Who's sometimes an interesting little barometer to tap. Where is the BBC now? I think right up maybe until the mid-80s, and then it stops being a useful barometer of what's happening at the BBC because it becomes too much of a an outsider. So we find ourselves in 1966, and the 60s are officially happening. In the same way as, say... Bob and Terry have had this discussion already. Are the 60s happening for the majority of the United Kingdom, or are they still relatively limited to London at this point? I think by October 1966, BBC Two was pretty much available everywhere. So people can get a glimpse of what goes on in these milk bar, arty hangouts and all that kind of stuff. The ITV companies have changed their idents, some of them. Associated Rediffusion has become Rediffusion London. And the reason I'm saying this is we watched, we did watch The Web Planet, wrote it off as research, then we watched The Tenth Planet. There's different stuff going on. That's only, what, a year? But the whole approach, I mean, it's change of producer and things like that, but I think a certain type of approach to science fiction has caught up with Doctor Who. And let's try and draw the lines where this is. When we did Pathfinders, you know, I was talking about new Elizabethanism, that post-war optimism that Britain was going to be there in the space race and we would send people to the moon. But it's still the time of shining, shimmering rockets that just look like you know a long piece of brushed steel. The Skylon sculpture at the Festival of Britain. Space travel is going to become a reality, but 
it's still kind of a fantasy. You're not saying anything. Is is what I'm saying making sense? It's basically like in ten years' time, we're going to have space travel, but it looks almost kind of like storybookish. The the rockets don't look right. I got slightly confused because when you said the Festival of Britain, I was actually thinking of the Festival of Light. And I was thinking of Mary Whitehouse and Cliff Richard and what have you, and I'm thinking, how did they fit into this? Are there any television programmes that are particularly tied with the Festival of Light? You know, dramas. Songs of Praise? No, dramas. Oh, see. Right, okay, well, you've got that one about Mary Whitehouse from a couple of years back on BBC4. That's a couple of years ago. That's after the end of history. Fine. We Let's put this away into the draw <laughs> marked not to be opened until we get hold of some Swizzlewick, assuming that even exists. We'll check Lost Shows later. That's where Richard Whiteley went to school, isn't it? Do you know what I mean, though, about a certain approach to science fiction, a 50s version of science fiction? I mean, if we talk about like space travel in the 1940s, I know they had other things on their mind for half the 1940s, but imagine what a 1940s vision of space travel would be like. I mean, that's just like pie-in-the-sky stuff. The 1950s, it's going to be a reality, but there's still a little bit of that atom-age design. It's still slightly fantastic. By the time we're getting to the 10th planet, it's practical. It's quite down-to-earth. Rockets, you can see panels fitted together. Rockets are not an aesthetic thing. They have a job to do. They have a job to fling stuff up. If they look pretty or not, that's not the problem. One thing I did cotton on to right at the beginning of this story, because it's set in 1986, the young scamp, whatever his name is. Ben, as we call him, shut up, Ben. Right, now he says to your man who's in charge of it all, he says, oh, well, they're up in, on the moon, are they? And the fella who later on becomes a customer at Grace Brothers, he says, yes, I mean, it, we often have space missions to the moon these days. Now, interestingly enough, he didn't say, oh yeah, everybody goes on the moon. It's like, you know, that's where Thomas Cook goes these days. Everybody goes on holiday to the moon. It's not It's not fantastic like that. It's not absurd. And of course, it couldn't really be, could it? Because if everybody went to the moon on holiday, then there wouldn't be any story here, would there? I mean, there wouldn't be any business but trying to get them back in the capsule. So it's nice that even though it is looking ahead, it's not absurd. It's not ridiculous. It's not saying... In that sort of stereotypical tomorrow's world way, I'm not really sure that tomorrow's world ever really did this. But the way that like satirists and what have you say that tomorrow's world say, oh, in three years' time we'll all be bouncing around with jetpacks and all that kind of stuff, it doesn't really go there. It, it it sort of keeps its feet on the ground, so to speak. And that wasn't a pun on gravity. If it was, it was accidental. Notice how I had to go straight to Pathfinders, had to bypass three years of Doctor Who, and part of that is we've had a change of producer in a slide has replaced John Wiles, who may have quit because he was not allowed to change the lead actor. That's another thing to come to. And Innes Lloyd has broken a taboo about visiting Earth in science fiction contexts. See, to talk about space travel in early 60s television, I had to go to Pathfinders because they weren't showing space travel in the 20th century on Doctor Who before. They were going to alien worlds and they were going to Earth history. There was a bit... I don't know if it was an official rule. I don't know if it was a, something in the writer's Bible or anything like that, if they had those in those days, but it's something you don't see. And suddenly, a few stories before the 10th planet, we're now having science fiction adventures on 20th century Earth. And if you're shouting Planet of Giants at me, shut up. I wasn't. Oh, no, that's fine. But you're here because you don't know much about Doctor Who. <laughs> That's good. You can make new connections. It's a new. It's not ignorant. It's a fresh perspective. I think much is extending it somewhat. I think you're you're, you're giving me far too much credit. There. You know now. You know hee haw. <laughs> but okay, no. But okay, one thing I'll say about this right off the bat is that it is much more dialogue heavy. This episode It's certainly in comparison to the one with the bees that we were looking at before. <laughs> Now, I don't know, I mean, maybe you can tell me, because you'll know, the one with the bees, is that atypical? But this seemed to be a more mature... That was an attempt to do something bold and new. That was really the opposite of the approach being taken here. Because that was, they go to an alien world, and the aliens are completely alien. We even have dialogue to show how their thought processes 
do not move along the same lines as human thought processes. The line people quote is, A silent wall, we will make mouths in it with our weapons, and then it will speak more light. And that never took off as a campaign slogan, did it? Back to the Festival of Light, you never know. Malcolm Muggeridge doing his Mikey Arwood impression. Maybe a four-party candidate in 2020 could get away with this. Handing out the nut cutlets. (laughs) We're on 20th century Earth because science fiction is now the stuff of everyday life. Computers are now a thing in some people's workplaces. The first big science fiction in the 20th century Doctor Who story... I think is the war machines, and that's all about computers in 1966 doing bad stuff. So we've got to the point where they don't have to explain the concept of computers, for example. Not not in any great detail. There'll, there'll be a little bit of dialogue at the, the beginning of the episode to establish what's going on. But like in this, for example, this the 10th planet, okay, they're on a mission to the moon. They're trying to get the two guys back and what have you. They don't have to spend too much time explaining that. Because, of course, we're in the era of the Apollo missions by this point. This is, what is it, five years after Kennedy's statement about wanting to get man on the moon by the end of the decade. So it's certainly topical, and it's something that the audience can just happily accept from the get-go. When did Wilson make his white heat? Uh, I'm going to say... White heat of technology, not not doing his James Cagney impression. I'm going to say 64, but I'm just going to check. Hang on a second. Let's go with the chock-a-block and have a look. Okay, Um, should we draw a little arbitrary line? Or or should we we do some sort of gradient? Right, you know, new Elizabethan space travel. We'll be up there with our rockets. We'll be the new Dominion. (laughs) I'd stick a Union Jack in the moon, who knows? Two, white heat of technology. It's happening all around you now. Space travel is not the distant future or the sometime soon. It's the immediate future. Rockets are going up. Satellites are already up there. Just a quick aside. It it was 63, by the way. 63. uh, Labour conference. Wilson gave the speech. Do you know where he gave it? Do you know where the white heat of technology actually emanates from? If we take the speech as its actual sort of birth. Scarborough! Well, hey! That's where the white heat of technology comes from. And Charles Lawton, fantastic. And as part of this new approach, Doctor Who has a scientific story consultant and advisor, Kit Peddler. Part of the idea has come from him. So here's the thing about this story. Would you like to know some details about Kit Peddler that I downloaded earlier on and completely bloody forgot about? No, bring them in if they're relevant. He's an ophthalmologist, yeah? Yeah, he, he is indeed, yes. And I'm yeah. glad that you pronounced that okay, because right, I was trying on. to work it out. Yeah, okay. So here's the interesting thing. Right, no, we've got a picture now. We've got a picture now. Painted a picture of white heat of technology, space travel, immediate future, realistic approaches to space travel. It's unglamorous business. It's done with international cooperation. And let's face it, the Americans are holding the purse strings. Science fiction is everyday life. In 1966, the BBC has commissioned Tomorrow's World. The Doctor Who production office has got somebody in to consult about the science in its stories. And the Tenth Planet is scientific nonsense. That's not a judgment. That's an observation because the story is interesting whether it all holds together or doesn't. But it really does not hold together in any way scientifically. Once you've got our setting, once you've got the idea that we go up to the moon all the time, on governmental international cooperation things it's you know it's not space holidays so a planet comes close to the earth it has no gravitational effect it starts drawing energy from the earth energy what kind of energy thermal electrical the astronauts who are the first to spot this planet they start getting weak so what just, just energy energy is just this thing it doesn't matter where the energy comes from. It just seems to. And does it come from a power plant? Does it come from a bar of Kendall Mink Kick? This planet just sucks energy. Yeah, but the thing is, you don't really need to know, do you? I mean, if Wellerman, Jack Scott or whoever, comes on after the news and says it's going to be a bit grey tomorrow, it's going to be a bit cloudy, maybe some rain coming in, what have you, he doesn't actually go into detailed analysis of why that happens, does he? I mean, presumably you're supposed to know because you landed in school or something, but. Do you know what I mean? So he just says it's going to rain. You, you don't need to know the specifics. I've just set up this whole thing about how everything's different now here in Doctor Whoville because 
things are realistic. No, things are coming in a realistic box, but when you open it up, it's fantasy. None the worse for that. I think there are plot problems. It's more pacing problems. I mean, I could describe it to you now. Oh, no, here come the Cybermen. Oh, oh, hang on a minute. I've got one of their guns. Zap. Oh, that's the end of the Cybermen. Oh, there's some more Cybermen here. Hang on a minute. They don't like radioactivity. And I got one of their guns. Zap, 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 zap. Phew. Oh, boy. That was... Oh, no, there's more Cybermen. Oh, now they're all over the place. Oh, now they're all dead. Bye. That's flippant, but... Well, no, it's not, because I had that problem with the cockroaches. I mean, I had that sort of problem where, you know, you get rid of one thing that's it dealt with and then there's more of them. And it's like, and then eventually you start to think, right, we need to actually get to the root cause of the cockroaches because just doing them in as and when they turn up is not really helping. Right. You're talking about cockroaches in your flat. You're not talking about the web planet. Uh, I realized that as I was saying it. Yes. No, that is a good point. This is not an analogy. I had literal Zabi here. We had to get the pest control. I wouldn't mind having that. So the plot problems are something I, will, I might actually come down negatively on. But the fact that this is really just all fantasy dressed up as something realistic gets the job done. Fine. I like it. I like that aspect of it. Even the Cybermen, there's something indecisive about their full nature. There's one interesting idea you could say about the Cybermen. And again, we're already getting artificial limbs yeah that's that, that's been a thing for a while uh what about medical technology when are we getting pacemakers and artificial heart valves is that already happening by that point we're still a year away from the first heart transplant so you're throwing all these questions at me and i need to go and look up answers right i'm sorry i thought you're more educated than me hang on hang on hang on, hang on. Oh, but let's even just talk about hearing aids right then okay so well we're actually going back to development of it is an early 1930s commercial availability in 1956 of the pacemaker so you know medical technology is going in a certain direction and this is and i've forgotten his name is it theseus's ship you know washington's axe or trigger's broom at what point can you replace every part of a human being and they stop being a human being i think it's shatner's bassoon isn't it (laughs) at what point would a human being stop feeling human I mean, these Cybermen, they all have human brains, but they don't have adrenal glands. Right, you see that pacemaker business? That was actually one of the components that became commercially available. The first pacemaker with a lithium battery actually was 1974, believe it or not. Oh, okay. But it's no doubt things that are going to be the new scientist. Well, it's it's probably something that Raymond Baxter has discussed at some point of a first evening. So it's that question, because there's a line in here about how our brains are like yours, but they have had certain weaknesses removed. You call them emotions. I think that bit plays against the the more interesting idea, which would be more that emotion isn't just something that happens in the brain. As something gets replaced, if you replace your digestive system with something more efficient, if somebody tells you bad news, you don't get that lurching feeling in your stomach, you have enough artificial heart... It doesn't necessarily speed up and slow down under stress. How much of a person could you replace before they stopped acting like a person? Would it be long before you ever got to replacing their brain? So Cybermen, they have human brains, and there's definitely other organic stuff in there, but enough of them has been replaced. But here it's more like, oh no, you know, once, once you're turned into a Cyberman, we also suck the emotions out of you. Mm, not sure I like that bit. So again, this the, the science is all at war with itself. But it's a good, strong idea. They're not robots. This is science fiction. So are we not guilty of looking at this too closely in terms of detail and, and factual accuracy and so on? Because ultimately, it is a work of fiction. So I've got to give them a certain amount of leeway that not everything's going to make absolute sense. But also, there's nothing in here, there's nothing in this story. Who's talking about sense? I'm just saying there's an interesting idea, and they have a line of dialogue that kind of undermines the interesting idea. They say emotions have been removed, rather than, we found we didn't need them, we found we didn't have them anymore. That's all. There's just one little line of dialogue that implies the loss of emotion is an artificial process, and I'd like the idea that it would be implied more that it just went that way. It's that other side of science fiction, they played God. They tampered in God's domain. They they went too far. Science as a threat. Okay, well, can I can uh, shall I try and construct an argument why that makes sense? Then? So 
you're Cybermen. You're actual Cybermen. Because you believe it, or just because... No, 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 no. You want to. No, no, no. Well, don't argue from a place you don't believe, you Cybermen. <laughs> no, right. In all seriousness... Well, it's not in all seriousness at all. We're talking about Cybermen, for goodness sake. But, okay, so if the Cybermen... Let's say everything you just said happened, right? Cybermen are around and about, and what have you, and they're removing emotions, left, right, and center. You have contact lenses, don't you? I do have contact lenses, yeah. You artificial being! I'm not going to listen to you, I don't have you one, robot. I don't have one right now. Anyway, so, okay, the reason that they removed them, okay, is because, you know what it's like when you try and do things by committee, yeah? And even if, like, say, like, nine out of the ten people agree, there's almost some contrarian... So, He's in order Gary. to then make sure that that kind of thing can't happen, or perhaps it'll be some sort of weirdy, beardy, open university-type professor who will be the dissenter or something like that in the future. They just get rid of the damn things. Just extract the emotions. I'm not arguing in favour of this, by the way. It might sound as if I am, but I'm, I'm really not. That's why they do it, right? This is to prevent anybody having a brilliant idea and saying, actually, why don't we you know, maybe hold on to our emotions? No, just, it's done. The, the person who's on like the production line at Kellogg's, if he comes up with some brilliant idea tomorrow about how he wants to make like the Frosties you know, multicolored or something like that, it's not going to happen. And there's a reason why it doesn't happen, because it would balls up everything. So that, that that's it. And the Cybermen would probably look at the continuation of their race in a similar way to the production of Frosties. It's a conveyor belt. There you go. William Hartnell. Right at the beginning, he's a bit frail, isn't he? That was another reason, actually, that I was glad we watched the Web Planet before this, so you could see... Because the, the reason William Hartnell was replaced was because he was getting difficult to work with, and he was getting difficult to work with because he was getting ill. His circulation problems were beginning to affect his memory or beginning to affect his temperament. And I think he was already a fairly temperamental actor. It happens in creative types. There's certainly less of the Doctor in this story, isn't there? I mean, he, he's, he's there as a presence in three of the four episodes, but he's, he's more sort of in the background, and the, his two companions are sort of doing a lot more of the running around and what have you. Where it was it was really nice when we saw the Romans before, because that seems to me to be peak Hartnell, who's really enjoying the role and having fun with it. But there's one little bit that I think is pure William Hartnell Doctor Who. When the Cybermen say that they have no emotions, and the Doctor lists emotions, love, hate, pride, fear, have you no emotions, sir? Only William Hartnell would... would <laughs> sarcastically address a Cyberman as Sir. That's, just, that's like his one less big swing. It's kind of a shame that he he didn't go out as big as he could. Well, actually, no. Let's deal with the the ending towards the end of this show. So the other thing is so we've really got the Cyberman on one side and General Cutler, played by Robert Beatty, on the other. He's all emotion. So you've got this neat little parallel, emotionless and over-emotional, obsessed with his... Why does his son go up? I've, I've watched this story about five times and I still somehow zone out at the point when they explain why his son gets sent up in a rocket. Not just me then, good. <laughs> well, no, is it, is it not that he's just basically one of the astronauts? He's not in the capsule with Alan White and Earl Cameron. No, that's fine. I, I, I'm going to say that's bad watching on our part, not bad writing. <laughs> Anybody involved in this is part. I, I am. I am legitimately, occasionally getting confused in my mind between this and astronauts because we haven't said it already. We did actually watch a good deal of astronauts for the other. I watched podcast. all of it. No, we didn't. We didn't really go. I was ready. I watched all of it. You didn't watch all of season two, did you? Yes, I did. Did you? Yes. And you watched all of King and Vig as well. Yes, we never did that. <laughs> right. Okay. Must. Must. Must do. That's on the list. Doctor Who stories with a large supporting cast, is this the first such instance of this, or is this something which is relatively new? I mean, I'm saying that like the Romans, for example, they had a supporting cast, but it didn't feel as if they were so much of the, the centre of attention all at once. Here's another thing to talk about, which is Doctor Who boiling down to a format losing its free and easy quality. It's losing its what is a Doctor Who story, it's whatever we're doing now. Don't think there's a sense of this isn't Doctor Who-ish enough. This story, I think, marks the point when there's an easy way of doing a Doctor Who story and it will be done again and again and again for the next few years. But let's step away from Doctor Who. Let's look at the BBC in 1966. Because part of me's wondering, if the lead actor's not up to it anymore, why not just cancel the show? Hartnell was brought back. This was the first 
story recorded the season four recording block. There was a holdover from season three, so it's actually the second story of season four. The new season is commissioned with the full knowledge that the leading actor is going to be replaced. Why didn't they do that? Is it something about the BBC having its tendency to just let shows roll on and on and on as long as they're getting the job done? I mean, another thing we've been watching is Top of the Pops, which ran for 42 years? Okay, now I'm going to split my answer into two sections. I'm going to come out with one answer, which I think is more in keeping with this conversation altogether. And then I'm going to provide the secondary answer, which is the one that I actually believe. So the first answer... So the BBC has invested, you know, it's invested a lot in Doctor Who. It's brought over Sidney Newman from, from the other side, years gone by. And the BBC ethos is that shows are allowed to develop. And this is this is absolutely true. I mean, okay, I know it's a ridiculous analogy, a ridiculous comparison, but Only Fools and Horses, for example, took three series to establish itself as a hit. And that was even with the advantage of having repeat runs as well. So the BBC way is to let things sink in, give them time to breathe and find themselves, find their audience and so on. Doesn't always work. Sometimes a show will be dropped after one series or whatever. But generally speaking, ITV is much more ruthless. At the end of the day, they're looking at the bottom line. And if a show isn't paying its way, then it's going to get dropped. Whereas the BBC doesn't have to do that in all cases. Having invested in Doctor Who, we're now three years into the series, then of course, yeah, okay, it's a shame that William Harnell's going to step down, but we're going to carry on, we're going to continue. Now, that's the answer, and I actually believe everything that I've just said there, I didn't just make that up, right? But that's the answer that belongs in this kind of sphere, right? In this kind of discussion about cultural matters and so on, okay? Now, consult the BBC handbook, because BBC didn't have yearbooks, they had handbooks. BBC Handbook of 1966. I am quoting verbatim. Another source of income, the issue of licenses for the manufacture of toys, games, records and other consumer goods, also recorded a very healthy expansion. The main activity over the period in this, inverted commas, merchandising operation concerned the widely popular Daleks from the Doctor Who series. Some 60 licenses for the production of Dalek-inspired articles were issued <laughs> and more are under negotiation. So my mind just went to the two ninnies. Yes, that was ex- exactly what I was thinking earlier on. There is no getting away from it. I mean, just listening to that there, not just that 60 licenses have been issued, but more are under negotiation. So if you cancel Doctor Who because William Hartnell's going to drop out, then... That's that gone up in smoke. And they're saying another source of income. They're feeling the pinch. This is, where are we now? 66. This is 11 years after the establishment of commercial television. I think I'm right in saying this is four years after commercial television has now reached the whole of the UK. And people are asking, like they still ask nowadays, but people are legitimately asking, why are we still paying license fee when we've got commercial television these days? Commercial telly is a success. Why don't we just go all commercial? Why doesn't the BBC run adverts and so on and so on? So the BBC does need to find other ways of being able to sustain itself. And those naughty little Daleks, they sell well in the toy shops. So if we have a situation where there's a potential threat to the series continuing, let's have a look at ways around that. Now, am I being nasty and grubby and capitalist by saying that? If I am, just say so, but no, it's a factor, definitely. That's a great quote. And another thing springs to mind. Those licensing opportunities, as you say, were based around the Daleks. There were also attempts to get the new Daleks. What's the new Daleks going to be? Um, among which were the Zabi and the Monoptera from the Web Planet. Get little badges. Mechanoids, was that another one? There's definitely a few attempts to write, this is the new Daleks. This is going to be the one that kids are going to want to buy licensed merchandise of. And hasn't quite happened. But another thing, so those licensing opportunities are tied in with the designs and the monsters. They're not tied in with the Doctor. The Dalek costumes. Not sure anybody was licensing Doctor Who costumes. Little fancy waistcoats and ribbon bow ties. And something that popped into my head when when you were talking about that as well is a series of 50 cards that came with sweet cigarettes telling a story about Doctor Who and the Daleks and the Doctor 
does not look like William Hartnell. I don't know if they were, in those days, entirely ticklish about using actors' images. It's definitely something that eventually caused uh, a problem with Doctor Who merchandise, actually. There was a situation where Colin Baker's face didn't appear on books because his agent got in touch saying, how much does Colin get out of this? And the book publisher panicked and went, oh my god! And that was it. It wasn't like negotiations broke down. It wasn't even like, come on, wallets open. It was just like, is there a fee involved? And that was it. They panicked. 63, 64, and the other 60s might be a bit early for that. But if it is about licensing opportunities and the title character isn't too important, when it says Doctor Who on the box, it's saying Doctor Who is the title of the show, not the name of the character, as certain people say. They're wrong. He's totally Doctor Who, but there is merchandise with William Hartnell's face on. There are annuals. Uh, there are those show at home, uh, shine a light through a thing and it'll project a picture on a wall. But yes, the, the Dalek thing has shown those to be such a big cash cow. Toys, costumes. There is an aspect of we can keep this brand. Oh, no. Don't say the word brand. Remember what happened in the <laughs> We can keep this thingy going when not necessarily tied to an actor. There is also a creative way to go about this. Television is radio with pictures. By 1966, not really. Television is its own thing, but I don't think it's beyond the bounds of possibility to find remnants of radio thinking, radio manners clinging to parts of BBC television. And if you want to replace an actor on the radio, you do it. How many different Dan Archers were? There was a different one every show. We all had to do it. Quatermass. Before 1966, there's three series of Quatermass. It's a different Quatermass every time. No big deal. It happens. The only difference is, is that Doctor Who is fantastical enough that you can explain it within the story. There'd been two earlier ideas in the air for getting rid of Wilm Hartnell and explaining it within the story. But part of me is thinking, had it not happened mid-series, because they had to start this fourth series with a story already in hand from the previous production block, or maybe if there had just been a bigger gap between series, maybe the idea would have been somewhere, if it had really come down to it, just put the white wig on Patrick Troughton, just start a new series of Doctor Who with a different lead actor, because TV is ephemeral, it's disposable, so who's going to even remember the old Doctor Who? We wipe those shows because they're done with. So that's the unique thing. It is changing the lead actor and explaining it within the story so that you are now stuck. You can't do it again without explaining it again. It is an area, not, not exclusive to Doctor Who, of course, but it's an area that, which fascinates me is the decision process behind when a character is recast because an actor leaves and when their character is retired because an actor leaves. And I guess in every instance, it's always a new decision. There's always going to be a reason behind it. But why is that the case that over periods of time when you've got like a show that may be going for like sort of 10 or 12 years or whatever you might occasionally get circumstances in which the actor playing a particular role is replaced and then other times that character goes with them when they leave i guess in this particular instance i was going to say you couldn't really have doctor who without doctor who could you but then you have taggart without taggart there was never any suggestion that they had to then, after Mark McManus died, you had to bring in somebody else who just happened to be called Taggart, or that you had to change the name of the show and create a new spin-off show. The show just continued. Could Doctor Who have continued without the Doctor? Simply with his companions and other people? I mean, at some point there's this fanciful idea that the Daleks will get their own show. That it might be a co-production all shot on film. And... More interested people than I have investigated how far this got. The story, as I remember it, is there's this idea that the BBC are going to try and do a co-production, maybe with an American company, and it will be on film and in colour, and it will be about the Daleks. And that some of the seeds of that idea are planted in Doctor Who. There's a William Hartnell story, the Dalek Master Plan, or Daleks Master Plan. Or the Daleks' minder plan. Let's get Terry McCann to go everywhere we go. <laughs> and maybe Doctor Who won't come after us. 
The Daleks Christmas bonus. And that's got this whole thing about the space security service and Mark Corey and Sarah Kingdom and all these sexy space spies who are going to fight the Daleks. And that's kind of putting an idea of, right, imagine all this without that old guy in the middle. Maybe there's a market for that. Problem is the BBC didn't own the copyright outright on the Daleks. Had that happened, maybe there's a possibility they would have said, draw a line under Doctor Who and said, let's do a show about the Daleks. Well, that's that's such a massive what if that I apologise for speaking. Quick tangent at this stage. The films. What is the doing with going with a different actor to the TV show? And second of all, was that ever even acknowledged in the film? Is the fact that Peter Cushing doesn't look like William Hartnell or Patrick Troughton, was that ever actually an issue? Is that acknowledged in the films to any extent? I think with the films, the eye is on the international market who don't have a background with the TV series. And at the time they're being made, there is no definite past for the Doctor. So the film conjures one up, which is that he built the TARDIS in his backyard. He's a human scientist called Doctor Who. Because don't tie it to something that the audience out there that we're looking for will not have any familiarity with. This has to be something that people can come to cold. This is not for creating fans of the Doctor Who TV series. This is not to cater to fans of the Doctor Who TV series. This is bums on seats, Doctor Who and the Daleks, maybe it'll be a hit in America. Let's get somebody they easily recognise. Also, William Hartnell is too busy making Doctor Who for 40-some weeks of the year. He's not quite a big enough name, and he's too busy doing the, the original show, so I think that's it. There, there was less joined-up thinking, I think, in those days about this. Like the fact that you can have a series of sweet cigarette cards, Doctor Who and the Daleks, and Doctor Who is, is some strange guy with bushy eyebrows and black hair. I just want to bring up a Doctor Who story called the Macro Terror. There's a supporting character in that called Chicky, who's played by two different actresses. Sandra Bryant was playing her first, and then went, sorry, I've got something, I've got something, but I think I've left the gas on. I don't know, she had something else to do that meant she couldn't be in the subsequent episode. So it's just like, just get somebody else to say no more. Even then, it's like, the kids won't remember, two weeks ago. It interests me, people talk about this unique thing, and it's, it's a combination of factors that make it unique, but replacingly what's how many Sherlock Holmeses had there been on screen at that point it's, and maybe this is another thing Doctor Who has now leapt to the point that the character is bigger than any one actor to play him they're probably not thinking in those terms they're just reacting Doctor Who has to keep going on and we've decided Doctor Who has to keep going on with its central character still in place Doctor Who is bigger than William Hartnell. Those words might not have been said, but that's the feeling. Is this the point where the character joins that pantheon of endless, eternal, recyclable, recastable, malleable characters? This is, what, three years before James Bond changes face? But that's the thing. We can keep making James Bond movies without Sean Connery. That marks something happening to the character, even when you tie in Barry Nelson and Bob Holness. Replacing actors... There were precedents, and it could have happened a different way. There are all, it's all sorts of little things combined. Even the idea of William Hartnell falling on the floor and the camera going to him and a special effect turning him into Patrick Troughton, that's not that far planned ahead. At one point, it's, William Hartnell's going to fall on the floor with his cloak over his head, roll credits, beginning of the next story, they pull the cloak away and Patrick Troughton's there. That was one of the plans. Then it comes down to, right, William Hartle's going to lie on the floor, Patrick Chan's going to lie on the floor over there, and we'll just crossfade in the vision mixer. But wait, they're at Riverside Studios, and Riverside Studios has some faulty stuff in one of the vision mixers. So he says, if you use that faulty bank on the vision mixer, that actually makes a special effect. It's a fault, but it's a special fault. So that's when we have this thing of his face flaring up and then fading down. It's just all kinds of little different circumstances, little different decisions. Probably taken in the bar. There's somebody on the Mausoleum Club, there's a few people on the Mausoleum Club forum who work for the BBC who say, you read things, say, the BBC 
in its infinite wisdom, decided to do this. And it's like, no. Somebody came up to somebody else in the bar and said, shall we do A or B? And uh, B's going to be cheaper. A is probably the better idea. Um, oh, thingy's over there. Hey, can we do C? Yeah, we'll do C. We'll do C. Yeah, right. You're round? <laughs> well, I suppose, it, I suppose it makes sense, yeah. Toys. Toys, 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 toys. Let's go back to the toys. Because you found an interesting article about what happens to Doctor Who toys when Doctor Who is no longer the big stink. You you got the figures. We're down to an average of 7 million for Series 4, yeah? Yes. The figures for 1967 are listed as an average of 7.5 million viewers, which then goes up to 11 million in 1968, by which point it's slightly later in the evening. It's on at 10 to 6. So we had this bright idea, which was, what's on ITV? When Doctor Who was on in 1966. And we should have realised that's a very silly question to ask of ITV in 1966. Because it all depends where you live. If you live in London, there's wrestling. And then I think Emergency Ward 10. If you live in the North, it's just Jimmy. But later that night, after Doctor Who is finished, it's Batman. And I think that's possibly going to be something that's worrying the Doctor Who people. It's not up against it, but it's a young show. It's an action show. It's young and action-packed in a very 60s way. There might have been shows that the children liked ever since television existed. But this is going to have just a little bit more about it. It's just television's getting slightly faster moving. And this is pure comic book. It's not like a western. It's not going to be like Tarzan. It's not necessarily going to have literary roots or roots that you could pretend are literary. This is from comic books. This is brash low pop art the kids are going to lap that up so that's got to be another consideration in Doctor Who eventually with, within a few weeks of the 10th planet the historicals end that was, I was just going to ask you that that's exactly what I was going to ask they go to Scotland yeah. and everybody says let's never do that ever again I paraphrase a little and part of me's thinking is well it's, it's possibly just the producer thinking they're not my thing I don't think it's don't think it's what the audience wants anymore but why isn't it what the audience wants anymore is it because it's going to be too slow and talky is it children's fiction of a different time is children's television now beginning to be brash and fast moving and 60s and low when does Zocco start I don't think Zocco's for another couple of years but Zocco oh boy we could talk about Zocco, but I don't think we can get an entire show talking about Zocco unless we just described frame by frame what happens in the surviving shows. Don't like to get too explainable, but for those of you wondering, uh, Zocco was a talking pinball machine that presented cartoons and comic strips and old films that had been cut together to make pop videos and circus acts. And it was all that survives is two shows from the second series, by which point the pinball machine is gone. I've heard that the first series, those who can remember it, remember as being very disorientating. Like that Tim Conway show that got pulled halfway through. Another thing then we to talk about in the 60s is our companions, Ben and Polly. He's a pain. He's, he's always saying things. He's a sayer. We've established this. He's the kind of guy who you know, he comes out with stuff and he should just keep his traps shut. So of course he's going to annoy the, the guy in charge of it all, because, you know... He doesn't want some kid asking him what you did that for, what you did that for, what no, you did that for. No, I'm not saying anything, anything against Michael Craze. But yes, shut up, Ben. The worst thing Ben says in this story is the doctor says to the people at the base, you're shortly going to be having visitors. And Ben says, who's bringing them? Father Christmas on his sledge. Was there any need for that? No. And honestly, he, he needs to be sat down in a quiet place, and I'm not saying sedate him, but I mean, I'm just saying, you know, do something to keep him quiet, you know? Can you get, like, a comedy hammer or something like that and just whack him over the head with that? And he's got, like, a little Tweety Pie <laughs> above his head. No, ben, just... ben actually gets really useful. Ben ends up with some of the Doctor's lines <laughs> in episode three. Ben is as useful as that bloody hamster in Pathfinder. <laughs> but, but, but more lippy. But Ben is working class. Do you remember when we did the gunfighters and I was talking about Dodo, who was brought in to be working class? Um, and I don't think it had even been decided what kind of working class she was, because I, I hear stories saying she was meant to be a Cockney, but her first couple of things, she's got something faintly northwestern. Maybe she's meant to be from Manchester or somewhere in Lancashire. 
and at, at some point there's a memo goes somewhere saying BBC English and that's it and she leaves in the story that introduces Ben so very quickly suddenly working no working class companions working class companions are fine we just suddenly realize Michael Caine exists do you know what Ben leads to he leads to herself in no frills the, the, the teenage daughter that's what he leads to no, no, no. Yeah, oh, yes, he does. Yes, no. he does. 20, 20 years, it's just you can just see it like that. There you go. Straight line. You can't have one for the other. Don't go defending. <laughs> what? Don't, don't no, go defending no, you Ben. Can, you can have Ben without that character, no frills. <laughs> the completely forgotten Kathy Staff sitcom. I'm giving you, yeah, I'm, sorry, I'm giving you permission to explain no frills. So, okay, so there's a Kathy Staff sitcom that's in one series, and you took a dislike yeah, to that's some enough. character because she was a bit sort of mouthy and what have you, and impolite. Right. No, you cannot. Impolite. Have she said to her mother, "Are you stupid or what?" But that's, but that's what I'm saying. If you allow Ben, because her mother was confused about why she'd suddenly become obsessed with pool tables. Right. If you allow Ben in '66, you get that in '88. It's a straight line. If they put no, Ben's their... cheery. But Ben does not say, "Who's bringing him then for the Christmas on his sledge?" He doesn't. He's going, "Who's bringing him then for the Christmas on his sledge?" <laughs> Cheer up, mate! It'll never happen. Are you saying that Ben is ITV kid? Is that what you're saying? Are you saying Ben is the kind of kid who'd be watching Batman, so therefore we need someone like him here to bring over? No, having brought a working class character in, and I think Ben is a good idea, uh, I think there's a bit of difficulty writing him properly, and I think that's meant to be his natural working class anti-intellectualism, at least of a kind that somebody seemed to think he would have had. There, there are not enough full Ben shows in existence, and of course, Ben loses his job to a Scotsman from Horsforth, that <laughs> famous part, very, very, very southern part of Scotland. No, Fraser Hines is brought in last minute, and so half of Ben's lines go to Fraser Hines, and Ben suddenly ends up a bit of a spare part. Why has that happened? What, what, why? I mean, you've already, already got Somebody suddenly says, uh, I like this guy, let's bring him in. So... Shows how seated the pants some of the decisions are. And Annika Wills, who is literally made of 1966. 1966 in human form. But again, even though she's quite posh, something's changed in the Doctor Who girl. Polly is not a granddaughter figure. The first three are all riffs on the same idea. But Polly, Polly wears, wears false eyelashes. Polly's hair looks fantastic. She's her own person, isn't she? She's She's got a bit more about her, and she's not quite there to go, oh, look, monsters panic. So I'm not, not saying that about any of her predecessors, but yeah, she's, she's, she's her own character, and she is not simply there to just ask the Doctor what's happening, what's happening. Yeah, thanks for that. I was I was just about to talk about the fact that she wasn't really her own character. What? Again, like Ben, once they've got the... What does she do in this? She, she does reacts. actually. She, does she gets actually told offer... to make coffee. No, she offers. No, she offers. Yes, she's yeah. told. She offers to make coffee. This does end up being a thing with Polly. She does keep end up making the coffee and screaming. <laughs> I mean, at different points in the plot. I don't mean at the same time. I'll just go make some coffee, Doctor. <laughs> oh God, that percolator! I need to have it looked at. Oh. Oh. Is she decanting the like the, the hot water from the kettle to the cups by hand or something like that? It's when you realise that you've made it with milk and not Bailey's cream pumpkin spice coffee creamer. Oh, I want some of that. Tell me about that. No, seriously, I'm I'm quite serious now. Tell me about that. It's Tell actually people... quite subtle. It's not overwhelmingly pumpkin flavoured, but it is quite pleasant and sweet. This is this <laughs> is this is non-alcoholic Bailey's that you've got in the states that I don't think is in the UK. Although I'm looking it up just now. Oh, you can't you can't just drink it straight. Yeah, you meant to. No, because you put it in coffee. Yeah, yeah but like... but I don't think it's available in, in the UK as far as I'm aware. And it's actually hang on a minute. Oh. <laughs> so anyway, Polly has some of the same problems as Ben. Really strong idea. Really well cast. Great presence, but I don't think the writing does its best for her. And now, back to the chuckling Ouija. I'm sorry. I, I, it, would have, it would have made me laugh anyway, but it was just because of the conversation we just had before. The website is called Bailey's Creamers, but the website address actually looks like Bailey's Screamers. And straight away, I'm thinking, this is actually a thing. There is a thing in coffee making about screaming. It's, it's an integral part of the process. <laughs> Bailey screamers. So Polly 
is often dragged into feminist readings of Doctor Who as how not to do it. So you said that everything I just said was, was nonsense then? Well, I didn't ask you to say it. Well, could you then and remove it? And you did it? interrupt me. Could you then remove it so that I don't say it? No, you had you managed to map out the ideal of Polly. And again, a lot of her stories are missing. And hey, let's see what happens. Yeah, I was talking about the ideal Polly. When we move Polly. on to power of the... Yeah, exactly. I wasn't no, talking about how Polly is. I was talking about the, the ideal. That, that, that's, thank you for, for reminding me of that. So to come back to one of the things we were talking about earlier, this is really a... We have no right to talk about the the plotting of this story because this is a very undisciplined discussion. It's not even a discussion; it's a shouting match, <laughs> screaming match. Really. But no, but that's that's what we do. So why don't you open your window and you stick your head out. It's the kind of thing you hear being yelled in the street by Neds. They don't tend to talk a great deal about sixties Doctor Who, from what I've heard. Well, then... you listen carefully; you'll definitely hear screaming match about whether Polly was her own person or not. Love... So. Toys. I'd love that. Can you imagine how pleased I would be if if I got even the faintest whiff that a screaming match at two o'clock in the morning was about the the details, the broadcasting details during the three day week? I'd be out there (laughs) joining in. I mean, honestly, I would run down the stairs and just say, "Let me in, let me in." I wouldn't join in. How far have you got? And I'd be like getting the TV times discs out and everything. Never happens. Never happens. So toys. You found an interesting article. Where did you find that? That was from the Guardian. And it mentions the fact that Batman is the new big thing and one of the items that children are going to want under the tree in Christmas 1966 is the Batman Freeze Ray. And the Batman Freeze Ray is just the Doctor Who Dalek disintegrator gun painted a different colour with a sticker on saying Batman instead of a sticker on saying Doctor Who. But I think it shows that changing of the fickle audience in a way that would worry the BBC. To the best of your knowledge, was there ever a point before Michael Grade arrived? Was there ever a point in which the cancellation of Doctor Who was actually seriously considered? Circa 1970. After John Pertwee's first series, there was, I think, an idea. I'm actually, I'm not sure if the discussion happened after John Pertwee's first series or if it just happened before it will make the seventh series. If anybody knows better than I, uh, do correct me, because I think at one point people thought it was at the end of the sixth series, and the sixth series was a bit of a mess. But no, as I understand it, John Pertwee's cast, the seventh series is commissioned, but then there's this discussion, look for possible replacements for Doctor Who. And there's, there's going to be some idea of an Australian living in London called Snowy White. That was an idea. What really happened was the ideas kicked about weren't quite satisfactory enough, and John Pertie had managed to make a good splash. I'm assuming ratings were satisfactory. Appreciation indexes must have been satisfactory. It was decided that an eighth series was definitely a goer, and from there, ninth, tenth, and it, it went on. So as far as I know, that's the closest before 1985 that it got to cancellation. It occurred to me that the people, you know, they often talk about the Colin Baker era and Michael Grade's sort of hostility to this show and so on, but I've never really heard any serious suggestion that there was a possibility of it going otherwise. Michael Grade might have had a point. Doctor Who shouldn't have just kept being commissioned because it had been on for a long time. That's not a good reason to make a TV series. So I think it was perfectly fine to look at it and say, is this viable? But I think I think he let his hostility go past the point of reason. I have heard that when it was brought back in 2005 and it had been commissioned and that was when Grade joined the, the Board of Governors? Chairman of the Board of Governors? Uh, Grade became BBC Chairman in 2004. Right. So Doctor Who's being commissioned and some people went, oh, oh no, Michael Grade's back. Will he try and cancel it? People saying, no, don't be stupid. It's, it's, he, no, he's not that obsessed Apparently he had actually had a word with somebody he said, do you need to keep going with this? <laughs> no, Doctor Who shouldn't just keep going because it's always gone. So when are they going to apply that to EastEnders and Corey and Emmerdale then, in that case? I'm just fed up with Christmas Day being three hours of those every oh. bloody year. Anyway, and right. Doctor Who. Okay, right. Um, suggestion for you. Okay. I'm going to allow you one recasting if you're going to go down that. That is exactly you. what I'm going to do. That's exactly what I'm going to do. And... Is that true that Hartnell said there's only one man in England who can take over, and that's Patrick Troughton? Because then here's a quote, but... I have no reason to doubt it. I'd like to know 
when he said it and to whom. Was it that he just reached the same conclusion independently, or had he been told we're looking at Patrick Troughton and he was he was enthusiastic about that idea that if anybody had to replace him, it would be him? Okay, right. You're going to give me one recasting possibility, yeah? Okay. I was going to mention this earlier on, but I thought, no, you, you're, you're in the midst of something, so I held on to it. Okay, so I'm going to say it's after Peter Davison. Whoa, 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 whoa. I was going to allow you a recasting suggestion after William Harper. Well, if you that's wish the, if that's you, the matter in hand. Well, no, if you want to change it, then you can do that. But no, it, it's pertinent to the discussion. After Peter Davison, Keith Barron. I'm being serious, right? Now, come on. This could work. I can I can visualise this. I've seen pictures of William Hart that look a bit like Keith Barron. Well, there you go, then. Keith Barron was in a Peter Davison story. Okay, so what, what do you think? Because I can picture him in the Colin Baker role. I could picture him in Trial of the Time Lord. I can visualise this. Well, then you're doing the same thing that was done to Colin Baker, which was play against his strengths. Just run around in that costume and shout. Nobody's going to come out of that looking good. No, Keith Barron, when you say that, I can't see what tack he would take. Depends who's making the decisions and how confident he is, what decisions he wants to take. With certain ideas and certain people, when you get in a conversation with somebody about this person should have played the Doctor, this other person should have played the Doctor, it often means they should play this character they're famous of playing, but in the TARDIS. I think sometimes with any big role, any role at all really, You don't really know what is going to happen. You don't know what production wants, what the director wants, what's going to get developed in rehearsal. And I think I've mentioned this before. When they get John Pertwee, they were not getting him in to be a dashing Edwardian action hero. They were getting him in because he was funny. And the reason they wanted somebody funny was because of the direction Patrick Troughton took it in. And that, I think, is where we should leave Doctor Who for the moment. Hanging there with Patrick Troughton on his way to start his time in the TARDIS. And where's he going to take it? Patrick Troughton, television's Robin Hood at one time. Television's St. Paul in a series that still exists and I'd really quite like to see. Patrick Troughton, a man that William Hartnell has confidence in. An interesting character actor, but where is he going to take it? Where is he going to want to take it? And where is he not going to be allowed? What's going to happen? Well, you already know out there, and you'll find out for certain sometime in November. We're going to find out as well sometime in November, and sometime in December, if we're really on top of things, we here at Jaffa Kicks of Proust will talk about what happens when Patrick Troughton plays Doctor Who. We've done something popular. We've done something people like to talk about. We've done something that normal people talk about in their normal everyday lives. So next time we're going to talk about something that I actually have a slight clue about. So I may be bringing something to the conversation. You brought something to this conversation. You, Yeah, you brought different perspectives. You thought Polly was her own person. I thought she wasn't. So next time we are going to be up with the cats. We're going to be staying up all night. We're going to be staying awake. With ladies in moon-shaped swings. And jazz musicians. Hang on, that's only a very specific part of the country. That's not the part that matters. Well, for, for most people, it's the opening to a piece of incidental music that was used in the Sweeney and the cats walking along a wall in silhouette. So we're going to be talking about nighttime television, mainly ITV nighttime, but also other bits and pieces, occasional experiments on the BBC, on Channel 4. How did it all come about in the first place? Why did it all come about in the first place? We're going to be talking about gas top and a helicopter. We're going to be talking about the James Will radio show and all manner of other things, and Pete Waterman as well. So next time on Jaffa Kicks for Proust, we're going to be discussing nighttime TV in the UK. In the meantime, if you're listening to this show through thesitcomclub.com, there's another way of listening to this show. Go to podnos.com and look for the avatar that's based on an old packet of lard. It's blue, it's orange. It's very flat-looking, and it says Jaffa Cakes for Proust. You also might like to look for another flat-looking avatar with a sofa inside of a television screen. That's the sitcom club. That's our old project that ended very badly. But what if, right, you want to listen to something that isn't either a packet of lard or a sofa? Well, you've gone to the right place, haven't you? Because on podnews.com there are over 800 podcasts. Did you know that? 800. That's a lot of listening. That'll probably take you into 2017 if you listen to all that one go. 
you go to mixcloud.com forward slash sitcom club, confusingly enough, you'll find our music show, Jaffa Kick Jukebox. There aren't many. We don't do it very often, but just occasionally we get the urge to play some records. It's not an essential part, but actually I do recommend our non-Bond, James Bond and Eurovision shows. They're a bit more like the kind of thing we do here. Otherwise, it's a little on the self-indulgent side. But hey, maybe you really like us. In the meantime, if you've got anything at all for us, you can tweet us at Jaffas for Proust. You can email us, confusingly, at feedback at sitcomclub.com. And do follow us on Twitter and Facebook, where we will, of course, be keeping you up to date on whatever the next show is. And I think at some point, we need to sort of get back to some sort of fixed schedule, don't we? Perhaps New Year, because this this whole turn up whenever we feel like it, this is a terrible way to treat the listeners, isn't it? This is... Yeah, I'm looking at... We will try and get back onto a fixed schedule. We have lots of things lined up. Next time show is already recorded. So for the rest of this year, I think we're going to look at some more children's fantasy dramas like Doctor Who, the children's show for children. But 2017 is going to be rock and roll year for Jaffa Gex of Proust. So, in the meantime... Thank you very much indeed for listening. This has been Jaffa Cakes for Proust. 